Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm delighted to have multiple guests today. I have Dr. Tanya Yuritsky, who's a clinical pharmacy specialist in pain management and palliative care, hospice of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I have Dr. Rabia Atei from the Department of Pharmacy, San Diego Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, University of California, La Jolla, California. And Dr. Chris Herndon from the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the School of Pharmacy, Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, Illinois. My three colleagues, as well as a fourth colleague who could not join us, are all co-authors on a paper published in the Journal of Palliative Medicine titled, 10 Tips Palliative Care Pharmacists Want the Palliative Care Team to Know When Caring for Patients. Dr. Yurichke, how did this come to be? You want to give us a little background? Absolutely. So we all put our heads together and came up with the 10 things we really thought were important for anybody who's providing palliative care or hospice care to patients to know from a pharmacy perspective. We were kind of asked to do this um, in a real formal way, but it was we came up with these ideas and we we all agreed on what would be most important. And the truth is, as a pharmacist, there you know one of our important roles is to optimize symptom management for palliative care patients by providing evidence-based and patient-centered medication therapies and also to ensuring the optimal use of these medications for symptom management and palliative care. And because pharmacists are critical members of the palliative care team but are not always as accessible to some palliative care teams more than others, um, we thought it would be great to provide some of what we know in a more formal way. So that being said, I'm going to jump into one of um, one of the tips for starting. So the first tip I'm going to discuss is drug-induced QTC prolongation. Generally, QTC prolongation is um, dose and route related, and so while it's uncommon at the doses that we typically use of medications in palliative care, it is associated with an increased risk of torsade de plant, um, or which I'll from this point on call torsades. Um, and it can result in uh, ventricular fibrillation and sudden cardiac death. So it's important we know about this and what the risk factors are with the medications that we're actually um, using quite commonly. So we know in palliative care patients that at baseline they have a prolonged QTC in general. Usually it's not severe prolongation. So with torsades, we typically think of that as an increased risk of a QTC over 500 milliseconds or when there's a change of greater than 60 milliseconds in that interval. So um, there is no known true threshold, though, where torsades is likely to occur. There are some known predictors of QT prolongation, and that does include things like QTC prolonging medications, hypotalamia, elevated serum creatinine, um, female gender, structural heart disease, advanced age, and prolonged baseline QTC, as well as bradycardia and drug interactions. So one thing that people may not be thinking about is those uh, supplements or herbals that your patients may be taking. And so something like grapefruit juice uh, can increase the risk of these types of drug interactions due to the inhibition of the cytochrome P450 system. It's always important to think about those other things people may be taking and ask about them. When we think about medications that can potentially prolong the QTC, we always want to use the lowest effective dose and always reach for our oral administration route whenever possible. There is a dose-dependent risk that's associated with certain medications, and that's been seen with tricyclic antidepressants, medications like chlorpromazine at higher doses of above 100 milligrams, 
And um, even with ondansetron, and that's been about one or two hours after giving it via intravenous administration. So um, one medication we also commonly use is haloperidol. And we know that at lower doses of haloperidol, the risk is not as great as at higher doses. But generally also in the literature, we see that intravenous administration of haloperidol has as much as a twofold greater risk of QTC prolongation than when given in the oral route. And this, there is a significantly higher risk that's associated with doses of greater than 15 milligrams per day. So sticking to the lower doses and when giving it orally can be uh, better tolerated and safer. So um, we also know that QTC prolongation is rare with atypical antipsychotics, and there's virtually no QTC prolongation from aripiprazole. There was a study done that showed that compared oral haloperidol and oral olanzapine has had a fourfold increased risk of QTC prolongation with oral haloperidol. The dosing in this study was quite high and was more for the antipsychotic dosing with 15 milligrams of haloperidol and 20 milligrams of olanzapine. Um, so at the lower doses, it, the risk is less significant, but I think it's important to note the difference between the two drugs. So another drug that's commonly used um, is metoclopramide. And at the doses that we commonly use for motility disorders, we, it's not, they're not typically associated with QTC prolongation. Um, the higher doses that used to be used as an antiemetic for pre-chemotherapy were more likely to have, uh, be associated with QTC prolongation. Other drugs that are generally not associated with QTC prolongation include sertraline, paroxetine, and duloxetine. When we're thinking about other antidepressants, mirtazapine and trazodone also have a low risk of QTC prolongation at therapeutic dosing. A common drug that comes to mind when we think about QTC prolongation is methadone. It also commonly comes to mind when we think about palliative care and hospice care. And so if you look at the studies of methadone and QTC prolongation, it is really more associated with those very high doses of over 100 milligrams a day. And, another, and other risk factors are present, including drugs that interact with methadone's metabolism. In, in general, when using a medication that can increase the risk of torsade de plan or of QTC prolongation, we always want to be extra cautious, assess our risk factors, and then uh, from one clinical situation to the next, make a good decision on how to dose, again, using the lowest dose um, and trying to reach for oral whenever possible. So um, the next tip I can offer up it will be on that of olanzapine. Um, so olanzapine has really become one of my favorite drugs more recently um, in that I've found it just it treats so many different symptoms. And so um, there's growing evidence to support that clinical evidence and that uh, it, can, it has shown to have benefit in um, treatment of nausea, as well as things like appetite and insomnia may be helpful in those symptoms as well. Um, there is a more generally large adverse effect profile, and um, the cost may be prohibitive, especially in more in hospice situations where your dollars are more limited. Um, so olanzapine is an atypical antipsychotic, and it does have a very complex receptor binding profile. It has had an established role in the management of uh, delirium, uh, severe psych psychosis and psychotic disorders, as well as severe mental health disorders. There is more and more data supporting its use in symptom management, specifically in nausea and vomiting. Uh, we know that nausea and vomiting generally leads to appetite and weight loss, can lead to mood um, levels decreasing, as well as overall just 
poorer outcome. So when we have symptom clusters like this, oftentimes we have patients on multiple different medications to target each different symptom. And the kind of beauty of olanzapine is in one agent, you hit so many receptors that you treat a lot of this symptom cluster with one drug. So olanzapine binds dopamine, histamine, muscarinic, and serotonin receptors. And that's really what makes it very effective in nausea and vomiting. I kind of call it the kitchen sink of an antiemetic. It hits everything. Um, so based on its receptor profile, studies have been done and they supported use for olanzapine for nausea and vomiting in oncology. And as a result, America, the American Society of Clinical Oncology has added olanzapine to its antiemetic regimen for um, their highly emetogenic chemotherapies, as well as for use for breakthrough nausea and vomiting. There also is data demonstrating that palliative care patients can benefit from olanzapine for the treatment of nausea and vomiting as well. And as I previously stated, I've seen some very good benefits for patients who have refractory nausea and vomiting, and they um, really do a lot better when we started olanzapine. So um, this same receptor binding profile is actually what causes a lot of the potential side effects, and that's why people tend to reach for the drug a little bit later because it does hit so many receptors, so it can cause different, a lot more adverse effects than a drug that's more targeted. Um, so because of its strong affinity for the muscarinic and the histaminergic receptor, olanzapine can be sedating. We like to take advantage of this property and dose it at bedtime and try to help people get some sleep if they're suffering from insomnia. It also has um, these widespread effects that I talked about and all these different receptors that can likely lead to uh, weight gain as well, which if people are nauseous and vomiting, they're generally not eating and so weight loss is common. Finally, um, it can also help with depression and anxiety as it has serotonin activity and dopamine activity, but it also has activity at the GABA or the gamma aminobutyric acid receptor like the benzodiazepine. So it can also help with anxiety and mood. Uh, as I as previously mentioned, there are lots of side effects and common immediate side effects include those anticholinergic side effects like dry mouth and constipation. Orthostasis can be a problem, especially for our older and more frail patients, and so we have to make sure that we are aware um, that this can happen and that can increase the risk of falls. And there also may be dose-dependent extrapyramidal symptoms. Generally, the dosing we're using is lower, and so we don't have as much of a significant um, issue with those, but it's important to monitor. And so there are longer-term effects as well, but um, those can include glucose changes, hyperprolactinemia, and alterations in liver enzymes. The issue with cost is that oral olanzapine is more expensive, significantly more expensive than oral haloperidol or prochlorperazine in its orally disintegrating form, which may be reached for in someone who's not keeping things down as well, it's even more expensive. So if we are reaching for olanzapine, it's important to think about using it for its multimodal properties and then discontinuing the other antiemetics that would be covering similar receptors. Dr. Uritsky, if I could jump in, I think the cost is not only a barrier, and last time I checked, it was about $15 a tablet. Um, I'm curious what the rest of you have experienced when a patient comes from the inpatient environment, perhaps to home or to home-based hospice. Um, we have a heck of a time using antipsychotics, particularly in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, even when we're using it for nausea and not for behavioral disturbances. Uh, anybody else have any experience with that, having a hard time? Lynn, I couldn't agree more. Get... This is Chris, and what we typically find, too, is, is that a lot of our long-term care facilities 
in our area will give us tremendous pushback, mostly due to their concerns around some of their quality metrics ratings, even though those quality metrics specifically state that they should not be applied to patients uh, that are enrolled in hospice. Yeah, I think that's so important. And someone else was starting to say something? You know, I just wanted to add, even though I primarily work in the inpatient setting, we do get a lot of pushback on it, and we have to schedule the uh, antipsychotic use for nausea, but also provide a lot of education, and in the nursing administration, put in the, edu edu the indication um, for nausea or anxiety or a mix of those two symptoms versus um, for, as an antipsychotic. It makes me crazy when I hear from my hospice nurses about long-term care facilities who have a sign in the window saying, we are an antipsychotic-free facility, and they're so darn proud of it. And Chris is right. It's all because of those STARS ratings. That makes yeah. me crazy. So I refer to them as anti-dopaminergic agents instead of antipsychotics. I don't think I'm fooling anybody, but I feel better. Yeah, I tell my patients, I always have to explain to them that they are antipsychotics because inevitably they go online and look it up. Yeah. And they're like, you think I'm crazy and <laughs> I'm just nauseous. And so I always make sure they understand that we're using it as an anti-emetic. But yeah. it does become a problem when they transfer out at time. Yeah. I, yeah, I only really work inpatient, but I've heard stories <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And Zofran doesn't fix everything. A Dancitron is good for post-op nausea and vomiting and chemo-induced nausea and vomiting, not everything from soup to nuts. Would you all agree? Agreed. Okay. Rock on, girl. All right, so I will take one more tip and then I'm going to pass this off to some of my colleagues. Um, so I am going to address tip number seven, which is the immunotherapy drugs. So these are new blockbuster drugs that are seen or coming about every day with new indications. These are drugs ending in MAB or NIB, um, and they're oral oncology drugs that are not chemotherapy, but they do generally have some adverse effects that can be managed. Um, but we have to be aware of some of the limitations and also kind of what our options are in management, as well as the relevant drug interactions and in trying to use these drugs safely and effectively. So the adverse effects of immunotherapy can occur at any point. Most commonly, they occur in the first 8 to 12 weeks of therapy. The most common thing you may hear about is skin-related toxicities, rash, or pruritus. And so these uh, side effects of the immune checkpoint inhibitors, which include drugs like ipilimumab and pembrolizumab, um, if they are a lower grade or mild to moderate severity, grades 1 to 3, the adverse effects can generally be managed with topicals like emollients and steroids. Um, when they advance beyond that, they may require things like systemic steroids. GI toxicity includes commonly diarrhea and colitis, and it's more common with ipilimumab. Grades 1 and 2, which are mild to moderate, can be managed with loperamide and with electrolytes. But when it persists or when it advances beyond the grade 3 and grade 4, usually it requires a break from immunotherapy treatment and treatment with high-dose systemic corticosteroids. If cases are refractory to these treatments, then um, they can use infliximab to try and get relief from the toxicity. Nivolumab and pembrolizumab most commonly cause an immune-related arthritis, and these, this symptom can be palliated with the use of non-steroidals or um, COX-2 selective inhibitors, or the use of non-acetylated salicylates like choline magnesium trisalicylate or salicylate. If symptoms are more moderate, it may require use of a low-dose steroid um, between 10 and 20 milligrams of prednisolone or equivalent, and higher doses if the symptom is more severe or progressive. 
The use of systemic corticosteroids is not an absolute contraindication to immunotherapy. There is data supporting using steroids and saying they don't really affect the impact of uh, immunotherapy, and then there's also conflicting data saying maybe they do. And so because of that, um, it's really important when thinking about using steroids in your patient who's receiving palliative care that we first discuss this with the treating oncologist and ensure that they're okay with using steroids. If it's an emergent situation or severe adverse reaction um, and you have to save a life, that, that makes sense. But if we're using it to treat a, other ailments, we may really want to think about ensuring that we get uh, approval before initiating it in patients who are receiving immunotherapy. Oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs, these are the drugs often ending in NIB, things like erlotinib um, or sunitinib, can cause skin-related toxicity, diarrhea, and can change hair pigmentation and also cause neuropathies. It's important um, that TKIs have an acidic environment to be absorbed. So while the data on the outcomes for this interaction are limited, using proton pump inhibitors may actually decrease progression-free survival progression-free and overall survival when used concomitantly with sunitinib or with erlotinib. So if we are using an H2 receptor antagonist or an oral antacid solution together with an oral TKI, then patients should take their H2 receptor antagonist like venetidine or famotidine at least two hours after their oral chemotherapy or, um, in order to minimize the risk for this interaction. Just some important things to think about when we're thinking about um, you know, therapy drugs in our palliative care patients. You know, those TKIs, uh, they're, aside from the side effects you talked about, Tanya, they're actually fairly well tolerated, which becomes quite a conversation for us in hospice because you could consider them to be drugs that palliate the disease process. So really, they are the financial responsibility of the hospice. So we have quite a few conversations about that. I imagine that's challenging. Yeah, and I just had a question when I was in Montreal last week about using a steroid with one of the immunotherapy drugs. I mean, if you have somebody with screaming metastatic bone pain, it's hard to say no to that, to, to using a, a steroid to treat that pain. Tough time. And more, more and more of the providers I'm seeing are more amenable to using them, given mm -hmm. that the data is showing there's likely less impact than we think. Um, so I think that's a good thing, but we still come up against every now and then <laughs> someone who won't yeah. let us do it. And then it's hard to explain, you know, how do you, what do you do? How do you manage mm -hmm. this pain? There you go. And I think it does matter if you're using it for palliation of symptoms versus if you're aiming for more uh, reduction in the disease or, you know, tumor load. So I think that's where I've seen more of the pushback is if they want more than just pa palliating the symptoms with the immunotherapy. Yeah, that makes sense. All righty. Who's next, Tanya? Who we have next? We've got Chris. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm super excited to be here with all my palliative care compadres. Uh, and thanks for allowing me to work on this important project with all of you. Uh, my tips are on the benzodiazepines and the NSAIDs. Uh, to start with, on the benzodiazepines, what, what we typically find in our hospice program is, is that everybody gets a prescription for lorazepam, whether they need it or not. And uh, I think that some of the important issues that, the, that with benzodiazepines that the palliative care team really need to know are, and these are not in any order of importance, but I think number one, the half-life when you look these drugs up in most of the uh, pharmacy information resources, the half-life of these drugs do not uh, 
uh, always reflect the duration of action of these medicines. Uh, the, the medicines, uh, for instance, diazepam or even lorazepam, uh, the actual anxiolytic benefit of those drugs uh, may be significantly shorter uh, than the actual reported half-life due to the redistribution uh, within the uh, body. I think the second thing I'd like to share with the audience is, is to make sure, even though it's rare, that everybody has in the back of their mind the paradoxical uh, reaction that can occur with benzodiazepines in which uh, agitation versus anxiolysis is actually realized. And I have to share a, a particular case that we had uh, in a patient that was brought from the hospice into our institution uh, and was put on a midazolam drip and titrated up and up and up and, and the providers just could not figure out why uh, we were not able to get this patient calm and comfortable. Um, and, and it was something that slipped, I think, uh, most of the folks' minds in the heat of the moment. And I think it's really important that that gets kind of put somewhere on the top of the page when you're using these medications, especially in the hospice patient, that we don't forget about uh, the potential for this paradoxical agitation. The third thing that I think is very reasonable to talk about, and again, coming back to at least our practice is, is that a lot of people get put on these, uh, I guess, you know, admission orders where we got to make sure we have everything that the patient might uh, potentially need in their home. And what we typically wind up seeing then is that uh, lorazepam, and I'm, I don't mean to pick on lorazepam, it just seems to be the most commonly used, uh, get used for a lot of indications that I think people take for granted. Um, we, we see benzodiazepines, namely lorazepam, used quite frequently for the treatment of dyspnea in our palliative care patients. Um, however, there may be some question around the actual benefit of using benzodiazepines in the treatment of dyspnea when there's not an underlying anxiety component to that. I know that anxiety and dyspnea frequently uh, play in the same sandbox together and can be seen together. However, when we do have dyspnea without anxiety, um, I'm not really sure that the benzodiazepines may be the best choice, and we should potentially be leaning on uh, those drugs that have a little bit better data, namely the opioids. And the thing that we battle frequently with, with our uh, hospice population is, is the, the risk versus benefit of using opiates and benzodiazepines concurrently, especially when we're using them for the same indication. I think lastly, one thing that I want to make sure uh, those of us that are using benzodiazepines, especially in the, in the long-term care facility world or palliative care, is that old handy mnemonic LOT, or L-O-T. And that stands for lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam. And these reflect the benzodiazepines that do not undergo phase one uh, metabolic reactions. And, and so theoretically may be a little bit safer in those patients that have hepatic compromise. And I, I don't know, for those of you who have been around a little while, uh, you may recall when lorazepam was backordered everywhere. I, I, it's probably coming up on about 20 years ago, and, and all of the hospices that I have had to work with in that period of time all had to quick spin themselves up on the use of oxazepam uh, versus lorazepam. I don't know, do you remember that, Lynn? 
Uh, vaguely, yes. I'm only 29, though, Chris. So oh, that's right. Sorry. <laughs> hard pressed to remember 20 years ago. <laughs> so I, I guess in short, you know, benzodiazepines are incredibly helpful in our patient population, and they're really, I think, uh, part of our essentials medicine list, even on, you know, as we put boots on the ground. But I, I think that we really need to consider their use in more of a patient-centered approach and, and not in such a shotgun pattern uh, that they're used today. Yeah, Chris, I, when you said um, a mnemonic you were going to mention, I thought you were going to say a ham sandwich because it seems like so many hospice patients, boom, welcome to hospice. You get your Haldol, your Ativan, and your morphine, your ham sandwich. Yep. Yep. And, you know, but, you know, we are kind of in a tough spot right now because the opioids are naughty kittens, the opioids in the benzos are naughty kittens, the opioids in gabapentin is not a good look. I mean, what is left? What? A, good Lord, what's left? Hugs. Yeah, we have to hug, hug therapy for hospice. Great. Hug therapy. That'll fix it. Hug it out. So, um, and you know, this is something that gets argued about frequently, and I, I think that it, I don't have the right answers of when you should and should not use these. I, I think that we take, we take the combination of benzodiazepines and opioids for granted sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if, if most of our audience is familiar with this, but opioids by themselves are fairly effective anxiolytics on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it may, it may require a little bit of, of second thought around how we're going to tackle dyspnea and anxiety, especially when they're, um, when they're being treated simultaneously and occurring at the same time. Yeah, but I think that data about using benzos for dyspnea came from Navigante, and those patients had like one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, and they got them a daisalam infusion, but they were like literally hovering on the brink of death. And what I find interesting is the data from Dr. David Huey from uh, MB Anderson looking at using the benzos in a little bit of a higher dose for people with delirium, and it actually showed benefit. So, boy, I'm really confused now. (laughs) Well, if it's okay, we'll move on to the next tip. Um, and this was the tip on NSAIDs. Uh, and unfortunately, I see, at least in our practice, NSAIDs overlooked quite a bit in the palliative care and hospice patient population. Um, and despite having fairly effective analgesic benefits, both alone and in combination with opioids, uh, a lot of times I think our providers will frequently believe that we've got the pain side covered uh, with the opioid and we don't need to add on uh, an analgesic theoretically that's less potent. Um, NSAIDs come in numerous flavors, and I think that the right NSAID should always be targeted to the right patient. Uh, They can be invaluable for adjunctive therapy for bone pain. Um, And the the problem with this is is that a lot of times I think the GI and renal adverse effects uh, that typically we consider when we're going to initiate uh, NSAIDs, I think spook a lot of our prescribers um, and, and, and I agree that that should be something that's, that's of concern. And obviously, we want to make sure we're not uh, initiating NSAID therapy in patients with pre-existing uh, chronic kidney disease that may come into our palliative care practices or patients who have uh, heart failure with uh, reduced ejection fraction. Uh, I, I, have to, I have to call on, I guess, my uh, star pupil, uh, and that's the... the non-acetylated salicylates. That tend to be our favorite go-to drug at the end of life. Um, And the reason for this is they tend to be very, very poor 
COX-1 and COX-2 inhibitors. So if you, if you compare their inhibitory concentration, their IC50, compared to some of the other more commonly used NSAIDs that we may see, like naproxen or ibuprofen, I, I almost even question calling these drugs uh, actual NSAIDs. And these are, this, the class of drugs I'm talking about include salicylate, diflunosol, and choline magnesium trisalicylate. Uh, and, and the thought behind this is, is that because they're so uh, weak in inhibiting COX-1 and COX-2, uh, that this probably is going to reduce side effect burden for patients in terms, again, of renal, GI, uh, and potentially, most importantly, bleeding risk. Um, the data around this to actually support it, I think, is fairly sparse, and so it does, it does kind of hamper our ability to really come out and forcefully and unequivocally state those, but I think that for people that have been in and around the palliative care world for quite some time, they'll tell you that they do tend to be, uh, while weaker, uh, better tolerated. And we're still trying to figure out exactly how these drugs work. There appears that there may be a tumor necrosis factor alpha uh, inhibitory component, uh, and it also looks like they may uh, inhibit nuclear factor uh, kappa beta, as well as some uh, microglial nitrite secretion. So what all that actually means for our palliative care patients, uh, I think, is, is left to be seen. Um, but there are patients that respond to this, and given the propensity for potentially lower adverse effects, they may, they may need to be moved up in our essential medicines list. Um, the other thing I think is important to note for our palliative care folks is we shouldn't forget about our topical NSAID alternatives for superficial pain due to osteoarthritis and some of the, the other types of arthralgia and myalgia that our end-of-life care patients frequently experience uh, that may not be directly related to the terminal prognosis. Um, I do need to make sure everyone is, is aware that we don't use topical NSAIDs for bone pain. I have seen uh, that order written in the past, and, and that's something that we need to make sure that, that we're not doing. This is for superficial uh, osteoarthritic conditions only. So that sums up my, my two tips. Again, thank you for allowing me to participate in this. Uh, what, what are some other uh, folks doing in terms of NSAID therapy in this patient population? You know, I think one conversation we have often is picking between a steroid and a non-steroidal for somebody with metastatic bone pain. And I always think about, you know, do they have diabetes or major GI issues? And, of course, if they have major GI issues, that kind of shoots both of those. But uh, that's one thing we think of. And, I, I, frankly, I'd rather use a steroid than a non-steroidal. What do you think, Chris? I, I actually agree. Um, a lot of it, I guess, would depend around what type of therapy they're already on in terms of, you know, where they're coming in from a chemotherapy standpoint. I get really nervous about uh, using NSAIDs in patients who might have uh, uh, low platelet counts uh, mm -hmm. due to whatever type of treatment that they've already received. Uh, I also get really nervous about the propensity, you know, for GI bleed, like you were stating, but also uh, for GI perforation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to my knowledge, I don't think corticosteroids, when used by themselves, at least in a healthy uh, adult population, greatly increase the risk for GI bleed. It's, it seems to be only when they are uh, combined with other platelet-active right. agents, anticoagulants, or NSAIDs. 
right. I agree. I, I, my favorite is is uh, dexamethasone for that indication. I think that a lot, for a lot of our um, hospice prescribers, what they tend to find, what I tend to find with them is, is that um, they tend to want to sit on the corticosteroids for those types of indications too long. They wait too long to initiate because of their concerns around some of the corticosteroid side effects and HPA axis suppression. So I agree. I agree. Well, you stole my thunder there, Herndon, because I'm going to talk about the steroids next. Sorry. My, my favorite line is, nobody should die without Dex on board. So I'm with you on that one. So I do think the corticosteroids, also known as glucocorticoids or steroids, very commonly used group of drugs. We use them for a bunch of things, such as pain, particularly metastatic bone pain, anorexia, cachexia, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, depression, brain meds, hypercalcemia, bowel obstruction, spinal cord compression, superior vena cava syndrome, I could just go on and on and on all day. And I do think there's no good data to support one over the other, although it does seem like we're all pretty much in love with dexamethasone. And I think this has to do with the greater glucocorticoid effect where 0.75 milligrams of dexamethasone gives you about the same kick as five of prednisone, but far less mineralocorticoid or sodium and fluid retention of dexamethasone compared to the other steroids. Um, I think generally the dose that that we see, typically I would say in hospice and palliative care is eight milligrams a day. I just had a conversation today with a physician because I generally recommend DEX four milligrams BID breakfast and lunch. And this physician was asking, why are you doing that? I thought it had a long tissue half-life. Dexamethasone does have a very long tissue half-life of about 60 hours. So you could give it once a day, and maybe this is just an urban legend, but I break it up because of issues about the stomach. But Chris's point is well taken. When you look at short-term therapy, and I would throw in there our median length of stay in hospice is 17 days. So a person who gets Dex their entire hospice stay um, I, we don't generally give uh, GI prophylaxis. You don't even really need it. Uh, Chris's point is correct that we only really worry about it when we combine it with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, which is not a good look, by the way, because you increase the risk of bleeding by about 15-fold. So I would just have them on a plain steroid. If I have to pick, I'm always going to go with a steroid, and I would not worry about GI prophylaxis. And again, I do love me a good intensol. Dex does come as a one milligram per mil oral solution. You can put it in the buccal cavity, and that works out pretty Pretty well. So what are the acute adverse effects we have to worry about? Thrush, for example, edema, dyspepsia occasionally, uh, very rarely GI ulceration, certainly the glucose intolerance, insomnia. That's why we say don't take it past 2 o'clock at the very latest in the day, and delirium and, and anxiety. So if it, if it makes the patient a little crazy and they want to jump out of the second story window and fly, you might want to move away from the steroid. But, you know, barring that, I don't, some prescribers feel like it's a moral, ethical, legal obligation to taper down off the steroid. And, I, you know, I think if the patient is responding and they're not having adverse effects and they're doing well, I say it's okay. You can go to heaven on dexamethasone. That works for me. Of course, there are longer-term side effects, but, you know, maybe if you're starting it in the palliative care arena before you even get to hospice, you may see some of these, such as the steroid facies, the moonlight facies, the fat redistribution, certainly the adrenal suppression, wound healing can be impaired, and so forth. But uh, I do think that uh, the steroids are a beautiful group of drugs. If you do decide to discontinue therapy, if they've been on it at least two weeks, I would probably taper down. Any tips that I've missed, anybody? No, that was great. And I just wanted to add that at um, our institution, our palliative care team does use it once a day without any GI prophylaxis. 
and we've seen no increase in any GI side effects. Um, and we actually even did a study to see if baseline, if you have no delirium, if dexamethasone would increase your delirium, and we didn't notice any change in that. Now, obviously, if your starting point is delirium, we don't start someone on dexamethasone. That's a, those are great tips. Thank you for that. One other tip I would throw out that's not even in the article is uh, our COPDers. Oh my gosh, all those bloody inhalers. Um, often we will move somebody from all those inhalers and uh, so many of the dry powder inhalers, our patients who are at end of life, they don't have the steam to suck up the drug. So we will switch them to do a number around the clock every four hours while awake. You can even do albuterol Q2 PRN in between and we will take the inhaled steroid and just go to dexamethasone um, oral because it hits so many other indications that are uh, appropriate in our population. So I think we all have voted that the steroids are awesome, awesome drugs. All right, my next tip is about fentanyl, which I think is a pretty amazing opioid, but it's often used inappropriately. Uh, we do know that all fentanyl formulations, except the injectable, require the patient be opioid tolerant, which is defined by the FDA as a patient taking 60 milligrams of oral morphine a day or more for at least a week. So this is true of transdermal fentanyl and the six transmucosal immediate release fentanyl formulations that are on the market. And those puppies, you have to go through the REM strategy and they are very, very expensive. So transdermal fentanyl, again, same thing. It's, it's indicated for severe pain requiring daily, around the clock, chronic opioids. I think there is some considerations before you jump in with transdermal fentanyl. If somebody is very thin and wasted and cachectic, it seems like we don't get the same bang for the buck that we would expect for somebody with a normal body habitus. Certainly anybody with a fever, I think a fever of 103 or 104, will increase the absorption of fentanyl by about 30 to 40 percent. So that can be clinically significant in my opinion. Uh, I do know that it's, you know, people get a little confused about how to switch to transdermal fentanyl. If you look at the Innovator product or a package labeling, they say if the patient is on 60 to 134 milligrams of oral morphine per day to switch to the 25 mic patch. But they even say in their own labeling, this is very conservative. So Breitbart popularized the method of you take the total daily dose of oral morphine in milligrams per day, you cut it in half, and that's your microgram per hour transdermal fentanyl patch. Uh, Dr. Reddy from MD Anderson found that it's closer to 40% than a 50%, so between 40 and 50%. I do also want to point out that uh, the pat we always think of the patch as available in five strengths, 12, 25, 50, 75, and 100 mics per hour. The 12 mic patch, you have to scratch your head and say, what the heck, what's with that? That is kind of misleading because you feel like, okay, if it's a doubling, should someone taking 25 milligrams of oral morphine a day be allowed to start on the transdermal fentanyl 12 mic patch? And the answer is no. That 12 mic patch is on the market for combining with other patch strengths. And I'll bet most of you did not know the transdermal fentanyl is also available as a 37 and a half, 62 and a half, and an 87 and a half microgram per hour patch. So it's really just representing using the 12 with a 25, a 50, or a 75 mic patch. So I frankly never recommend using that 12 mic patch. I don't even drill down that uh, sufficiently to go there. I do think the timing is important. When you apply a patch, it's going to take about you know, 17, 18 hours, probably up to 24 to get to pseudo steady state. And it does take about three days to get to absolute steady state. You know, and we always think of fentanyl as a quick on, quick off drug. And that is true. When you give someone, for example, an injection, 
of fentanyl, it's rapidly cleared from the uh, systemic circulation by redistribution. So it hops into the brain very quickly, and it hops out of the brain equally as quickly, back into the systemic circulation, and then it's sequestered in the fat. And then can, making things even more confusing and making you want to bang your head on the desk is that fentanyl is highly bound to albumin, about 70%. And we will see in cancer patients this extravascular leaking of albumin increases about 300%. So the albumin grabs the fentanyl and takes off of the hinterlands in the extravascular spaces. So when we see this, this is why people aren't getting the effect that we might expect. So lots going on with fentanyl, particularly transdermal. Uh, actually, it's not... Um, a formulation that I'm quick to recommend, um, because especially if somebody has pain that is changing very quickly, because it's sort of like steering with the Titanic. It's kind of hard to, to turn the boat with something that takes three to six days to truly get to steady state. Any tips from anybody else about fentanyl IV or, or transmucosal or transdermal? No, but it's really good to know about that albumin, because I have noticed that fentanyl isn't, isn't as effective at end-of-life care. All right. Right. Oh, all right. My last. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. I was going to say I work in an inpatient setting in an acute hospital, and there's a big difference in using fentanyl for sedation versus fentanyl for pain. I think that's important to call out because we see it used in the ICUs here very differently than we're using it for pain, and really, it's the dosing is quite different. So it's kind of challenging when we're making recommendations for pain, and like you're only going to give you know 25 or 50 mics. And like, yeah, we're not trying to date people. So I think sometimes it's important to call that out because we had major discrepancies here in dosing for a little while when they didn't realize, like, you know, pain dosing may be a little bit different. So That's great point, Tanya. Thank you. All right, my last tip is one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, they don't call me the poop queen for nothing. It's talking about constipation. Wow, what is constipation? Everybody's got a different definition. But certainly it has to do with frequency and straining. It's all about that. But patients with advanced illness very often do have constipation due to the drugs that we're using, most notably the opioids and their strong anticholinergics, their disease state, their altered diet, reduced physical activity. So a lot going on there. So what is our normal treatment for constipation? Um, generally, we use plain old Senna, which is a stimulant laxative, bisicodal if we must. And I I do like polyethylene glycol. The trouble with polyethylene glycol is the patient has to be able to swallow at least four, preferably eight ounces of a fluid to mix the polyethylene glycol in. Notably, uh, Senna works better than Senna-S, which is combining it with the docusate. That just kind of makes everything a red-hot mess, so don't even go there. So what if these don't work? What are we going to do? So there are some newer agents introduced to the market, lubiprostone, which is a chloride channel activator, linaclotide, a guanylate cyclase C agonist, and now we've got this whole crop of PAMORAs, peripherally active mu opioid receptor antagonists. So certainly everyone's familiar with methylnaltrexone, which, which we've had as a sub-Q injection for years and years, and now we have as oral, um, Movantic, which is naloxagol, and the new one is now Demidine, which is also on the market. So these are medications that are opioid antagonists, but they're restricted to the periphery for a variety of reasons, either a quaternary amine or it's a zwitterion or it's got some long side chain that prevents it from crossing into the crossing the blood-brain barrier. So, of course, we can give laxatives by mouth. We can use enemas or suppository per rectum. I do think it's important to keep an eye out for fecal impaction. I'm always concerned when I look at a medication history and I see Imodium followed by Senna, 
I have to question, are we coming or going here? So what's the deal? So often patients will get confused and say, oh my gosh, now I've got diarrhea. I better take Imodium when in fact it's fecal content oozing around a fecal impaction. Isn't this a lovely conversation here? Uh, one home remedy that I always like to talk about is the frozen Vaseline ball. You take chilled Vaseline and roll it into a pea-sized ball and then roll it in confectioner sugar. So it's just solid mineral oil. And for people who have kind of a high impaction and they're uncomfortable, have them swallow two or three several times a day. And a survey of almost 400 hospice professionals showed that two-thirds were very familiar with this and 90% thought it was very effective in uh, remedying this uh, higher impaction. So a little trick there for everyone. Any other constipation tricks anybody has up their sleeve? No, I think I covered the waterfront there. So Tanya, who's up next? Rabia? Yep, it's Rabia's turn. All right, well, I have the difficult task of following the poop queen who just talked about <laughs> Vaseline balls, but let's see if we can finish off these last two tips for the day. Opioid selection, opioid monitoring, and opioid titration should be based on pharmacokinetics of each individual drug with attention paid to onset of action, time to see max, half-life, and steady state of those medications. Now, if this PK language is making your head hurt a little bit, let's see if we can keep it simple. So onset, it, onset of action is kind of what it sounds like is when you expect the drug to start working. Time to see max is when you would expect peak effect. These are both important concepts, especially when you're dealing with as-needed or PRN opioids. So the approximate time to peak effect of an IV opioid is about 10 minutes, and the approximate time to peak effect of oral immediate release opioids is about 60 minutes. These are nice round numbers that make it easy to remember when you're at bedside, um, but obviously there's ranges. Steady state concentration is important for clinicians as it in indicates a safe time to assess therapy and consider whether you want to titrate the dose up if needed. And these are particularly important with long-acting opioid formulations. Five times the half-life um, is a pretty good um, accepted approximation of steady-state concentrations. And so steady-state con concentrations of the following long-acting opioids are as follows. Now, again, keep in mind I've used nice round numbers to make sure that your head doesn't hurt, but also that it's easy to remember. So steady-state concentrations for oral immediate-release opioids and IV opioids is about a day. For controlled-release oxycodone is about one to two days. And for sustained-release morphine, it's about two to three days. So if you started your patient on either long-acting oxycodone or long-acting morphine, hang tight for a couple of days before assessing um, whether it's at steady-state concentration and whether you need to make any adjustments. Now we're moving on to the um, long uh, haul with the fentanyl patch and methadone. Fentanyl patch reaches steady state, 100% steady state in about six days, or if you switch the patch every three days, it's two patch changes. But the majority, about 80% of the patch steady state is reached in about three days or one patch change. Methadone varies a lot, but on average, um, as a clinician, I wait till about seven days till, and consider that steady state before I assess whether I want to slowly go up on the methadone. 
And keep in mind that beyond pharmacokinetics, when initiating methadone, and as you heard with Dr. McPherson, all the things with fentanyl, you do have to keep other things in mind. Key ones that I always tell people, um, but it's not limited to just these, is the presence of chronic pain when starting methadone or fentanyl patch, the conversion factor, um, which Dr. McPherson talked about with fentanyl patch, um, and drug-drug interactions. How does that sound, group? So far, awesome. Are you guys still with me? I didn't lose you on pharmacokinetics. Well, I love it when you talk dirty, Rabia. <laughs> All right, now moving on to our final tip of the day, which is secret side effects. We like to call them secret. Um, some of them are common, but they're just not commonly known or thought about adverse effects. Um, and we think it's important, especially as we're using certain types of medications in palliative care. So as we all know, rarely do medications exist without any side effects. And the goal is always, let's use a medication where the efficacy is a lot more than the adverse effects. An additional factor we have to keep in mind that others have alluded to earlier is that in the palliative care setting, we're using medications off-label and at different doses and commonly at lower doses than the FDA-approved doses. And you have to keep in mind that the side effects may also be different because some side effects are dose-dependent. So let's talk about being mindful of these secret side effects at palliative care doses. On Dancitron, we kind of talked about on Dancitron, and even though I share Dr. McPherson's um, sentiments that it's not good for a whole lot, on Dancitron still gets used a lot, um, especially for nausea and vomiting. And it's not commonly known that ondansetron causes headaches and constipation. So for your patient who's on an opioid therapy and complains of headaches, less ondansetron, not more opioids, may alleviate their headache. And in the setting of opioid-induced nausea, vomiting, and constipation, metoclopramide, or as Dr. Uritsky would say, olanzapine, would be a better antiemetic than ondansetron. And although I love metoclopramide, and before we all consider putting it in the water, let's keep in mind that metoclopramide also has its own secret side effects. If you start your patient on metoclopramide and you notice restlessness in your patient, you may be witnessing dopamine-induced akathisia. You know how you'll know for sure? Is if you stop or hold the metoclopramide and the restlessness approves. We've had a few cases where the patient had restlessness for a couple of days, and we really thought it was anxiety or other things going on, but then when we held a few doses of the metoclopramide, that restlessness went away. So although I love metoclopramide, I am aware of the secret side effect now. In the palliative care setting, scopalamine and promethazine offer alternative to the oral route for treatment of nausea and vomiting. But... Um, and because they come in, the scopolamine comes in a patch that you can slap behind the ear, and promethazine um, is available in oral but also suppository NIV. But the next time you want to slap on a scope patch or recommend Phenergan suppository in your 70-year-old patient, consider that both these medications have anticholinergic side effects, notably sedation, dizziness, delirium, and constipation. So all of that would not be good in your palliative care or hospice patients, especially in the elderly population. We've talked a lot about constipation today, and um, 
one of the things I find that seems very tempting for our medical residents is to use Fleet's enema for constipation. And, but keep in mind that there's a 96%. That's almost guaranteed um, that it will cause hyperphosphatemia, even at normal renal functions. But then it becomes even more problematic um, at uh, renal dysfunction. So all the things that Dr. McPherson talked about, um, the non-traditional options, those Vaseline balls, um, or just simply tap water enema is just as effective. So let's put away the Fleet's enema aside. All right, continuing the poop talk because we can't get enough. In the setting of constipation, when you have a choice between lactulose and Miralax, and as Dr. McPherson said, you've got to be able to take, have oral intake. So if you have oral intake and you're deciding, should I do lactulose or Miralax, which one's my osmotic agent of choice, I would advocate you start with Miralax because lactulose has a lot of fat flatulence, and in fact, greater than 20% of patients experience this. And if your patient's on long-term opioids, now we're talking about months to years, be sure to monitor for long-term side effects of these medications, such as immunosuppression, hormonal, or endocrine dysfunction. All right, rounding off the last couple of secret side effects, and then you'll be in on all the secrets. Tramadol. I'm a big, I'm in the camp of Tramadont, but if you like Tramadol and you really, really want to use it, besides serotonin syndrome, which is known but doesn't commonly happen, we have to worry about hypoglycemia, which is emerging, and hypoglycemia to the point where it's causing hospitalization. Gabapentin. We all like our gabapentin as our first-line neuropathic pain agent, but it has up to 10% risk of causing peripheral edema. In fact, today I had to stop gabapentin on someone who, it, after a dose titration from 100 Q8 to 200 Q8, so not really dose-dependent, she developed edema in her periphery, and so we had to stop the gabapentin. TCAs. Um, the tertiary TCAs, the one that everybody knows a lot about, amitriptyline or Elevil, can cause a lot of anticholinergic side effects. Um, and we all know that that isn't good in our palliative care patients. Um, if you're going to need to use a TCA, use the secondary uh, the amines of TCA, including nortriptyline or disipramine. And keep in mind that those still have some anticholinergic effects, just less. And Dr. Uritsky, I know you love olanzapine, and you want it in the water too, but we do have to worry about up greater than 20% orthostatic hypotension in these patients. I think that's all the secrets I have for today. Anybody else want to add to that? Well, you sure spilled the beans there, girl. <laughs> and these are secrets that we'd like you to spread, not keep them a secret, because they're no good tips to remember. <laughs> That's right. Any comments from anybody else as we wrap up? All righty. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Yuritsky for heading up this motley crew here. She's the lead author on this paper, 10 Tips Palliative Care Pharmacists Want the Palliative Care Team to Know When Caring for Patients. Other authors are Rabia Atei, Christopher Herndon, Cashel Lockman, myself, and Christopher A. Jones. So I would like to thank our guests and thank you for listening to Palliative Care Chat, our podcast. Again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2018, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requ requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate 
www.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.